Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Mark Goldberg, venture partner at Index Ventures. Mark has had an amazing career so far. We'll walk through how he has consistently been around tech unicorns after leaving Morgan Stanley. Quickly, I want to tell you to check out some of the resources Wall Street Oasis has to help you prepare and crush interviews. From in-depth courses on investment banking and management consulting, resume help, and mock interview prep. Check them out. You really have nothing to lose. I caught a cold this weekend, just trying not to give it to my wife and daughter now. When I get sick, as you can probably tell that I am, I feel like the world is ending, like everything bad is happening to me. Basically, I just feel bad for myself. I think that's normal to do when you get sick, and actually probably pretty normal to do when you're not sick as well. To go through life feeling bad for yourself. You got unlucky because you didn't get a job or or didn't get into the right school. I don't think that's a good way to interact with the world. Nobody owes you anything. Feeling bad for yourself is probably normal, but it's a waste of time. Do you think Elon Musk feels bad for himself that he gets into trouble with the SEC or that his rocket blows up? No. He says, fuck that, smokes weed on a podcast, and launches another rocket and builds more cool cars. There's this post this week from Goldman Snacks, funny name by the way, uh, called Why Prestige Really Matters. Basically, Goldman Snacks says that going to a top school or working at a top firm says to the world that you deserve to be there. You're smart, hardworking, or both. People that don't work at GS or go to Harvard shouldn't feel bad for themselves. They should just work harder to get what they want. Nothing is going to be handed to you in life. You have to grind for everything. If you grind early in life and you get into an amazing school, then yeah, stuff might come a little easier for you. If you didn't hustle as hard in high school and don't get into Penn, it's not too late for you. You just need to amp up your hustle. Stop feeling bad for yourself. Just go get what you want. The main takeaway of this podcast for me is that there's no grand plan for anyone. No one's born knowing they're going to work at Carlisle. They just work hard, put themselves in good positions, and good things happen. That's it. Now go crush. Oh, and download Pay Club and give this podcast five stars on iTunes.
Mark Goldberg, venture partner now at Index Ventures. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Um, I'm excited to, to have a conversation. Yeah, so you, like a lot of people at Wall Street Oasis, you started your career in investment banking. You worked for Morgan Stanley for a couple of years right out of school, correct? That's correct. Uh, it was my first job, and I actually summered at Morgan Stanley between my junior and senior year, and then stayed for uh, another three years full-time after that. Awesome. And what group were you in there? So I did a summer uh, on a trading floor, but when I went back full-time, I did two years on a leveraged finance desk and a year in investment banking uh, in GPUG, our power and utilities group. Got it. And this was in New York? This was in New York. And uh, right at the beginning of the financial crisis, so sitting on a leveraged finance desk, as the world was imploding from a credit perspective, was a pretty fascinating window. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. So you're there for three years. That's kind of on the longer side of an investment bank. That's the full analyst program you were there for. What, what were you thinking you wanted to do at that point? Well, the reason I stayed beyond the two years was having the capital markets background, I wanted to make sure that I got one year of kind of traditional investment banking. So I decided to stick around for a third year to do that. The other reason I stuck around was our power and utilities group had a pretty close relationship with a technology group out in San Francisco. And what that meant is we, as a joint collaboration, worked on a bunch of renewable energy and clean technology companies. Um, that was an area that I'd always been really passionate about. And so I knew I'd get a chance to work on some of the the, the deals that I wanted to from, from that third year. And um, one of the deals that I got to work on was the IPO for Tesla which is a, a really amazing experience. And as part of that, um, you know, and, and kind of my love for, for that industry, I ended up deciding to go to a clean tech uh, specific private equity and growth equity fund for another few years after my experience at Morgan Stanley. So was that industry interest, did you have that before you started banking or did you kind of get that once you were at Morgan Stanley? I did. Uh, I would say from, from college and even before college, I was always interested in renewable energy um, for me, Morgan Stanley was really a training ground. I had a liberal arts background. Uh, I had never taken an undergraduate finance course. And so for me, the experience at Morgan Stanley was building the toolkit to do other things and to pursue other passions. For me, renewable energy was always the passion. And um, the, the time at Morgan Stanley was more of a, uh, a, of a means to an end in that regard. Yeah, as it, as it is for, for most people. So, okay, you're, you're there for three years. You bounce, you go to this growth equity, clean tech uh, investment firm. Uh, how long were you there for and what was that like? I was there for two and a half years. Um, I loved it. It was, at the time, one of the biggest, it might still be one of the biggest uh, uh, dedicated clean tech funds. We had over a billion dollars in capital to invest. And there weren't very many platforms that had that sort of opportunity. Also, as I think... Um, many people have made the transition from the sell side to the buy side. It was great just to become a principal as opposed to an agent. Um, and so th in that regard, the experience was fantastic. What I'd say is it, it was a tough time to be investing in clean tech. We, uh, the fund had started a few years before I got there when I joined in 2010. Um, it was just at the end of the bull run in clean tech. And what that means is that we had made a bunch of our initial investments at the kind of peak of the market. And then over the, the time I was there, the bottom really fell out within clean technology. And that was with uh, China becoming a major player and 
and challenging a lot of the uh, manufacturing companies in, in, in the West, including in the U.S. Um, so a, uh, a wonderful chance to get to learn that sector, uh, a fun transition to the buy side, but not a, a lucrative seat to be in. Right. So you didn't you didn't get to experience that carry that private equity guys make and you're investing at the bottom and then five, six, seven years later you start to like reap these huge sums of money and start buying houses in the Hamptons and boats and all that stuff. There were no boats uh, on account of my Hudson Clean Energy uh, days, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a great experience. I learned a lot, which is really what I was optimizing for. Yeah. Okay. So you're on the buy side now, an enviable spot. A lot of people want to be there. Um Maybe not the best time in terms of the cycle, but you're there. So then what happens? So from there, uh, you know, we had struggled to raise a second fund. Um, It was unclear what the future of investing at Hudson would look like. And at the same time, I had been doing a handful of deals in San Francisco and the Bay Area. Uh, So I I lived on the East Coast my whole life until that point. But I'd always been interested in the West Coast and in living in San Francisco. So on a diligence trip uh, for one of the clean tech deals that I was looking at, I ended up uh, meeting a bunch of startups uh, and really getting to see the ecosystem here in San Francisco. And on, on that trip, I met the Dropbox team and just absolutely fell in love with the culture there and the people and made a pretty quick decision to uproot and to head out to San Francisco. Um, wow. That's, I mean, that's so cool. So how long did you think, were you, were you at this job, you're thinking, oh, I want to I eventually, like you, 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 had, you saw this at Morgan Stanley. You started liking working on tech deals. You saw it again at Hudson. You like working in tech. So, like, when did you get like the inclination? Oh, I want to, I want to go west. You know, I think it was more on a personal level. I, I really like the idea of being in San Francisco as a city. Um, you know, for some of your listeners who have spent a lot of time in New York, uh, it can feel a little claustrophobic after too long. And I like a lot of outdoor activities. This city is much more uh, amenable to um, those sort of activities. And so uh, on a personal level, it was just something where I thought I would enjoy living in a, in a different area. Um, and then professionally, you know, I hadn't really thought about uh, joining a startup uh, or an operating role until very, uh, very near the, the, the opportunity I had to actually do so. Um, for me, you know, I've been very happy with the investing side with Wall Street Um so it wasn't something I was, uh, you know, super antsy to go get to do. For me, it's always been trying to find really smart people and then going to work with them. And so for me, you know, I, I don't know how I made it through the Dropbox interview process because I was not a power user. Um, at the time uh, when I joined, it was just over 200 people. And the majority of, of employees were still engineers and product managers and designers. They didn't have a lot of, of, uh, of non-technical uh, business people on the team. And so I was probably one of the, I probably understood the product the least of anyone at the company when I joined. Um, but I think that speaks to, you know, my rationale for doing it, which was not, I was this power user who had to be working um, with the product. It was, wow, what a great group of smart people and what an opportunity to come in and help build this business. And that's what attracted me. Right. So that's so cool. I mean, I read the Dropbox case study in business school. So like at what point you said there was a few hundred people at the company, like what point was the company at? Like, where were they in, in the market? And, uh, and what, what was the job they hired you for? Uh, <laughs> I, I should go back and find what the title was from, from my offer. But at the end of the day, it was general athlete help think about how to make this business, uh, succeed. And I know that's a very generic way of describing the role, but really, uh, 
what they needed at the time was they had a, a product that was selling itself and uh, they were this the success was reactive in some ways the the commercial success was reactive in some ways and what they decided to do and a lot of credit to the the founders and the management team at Dropbox um, and and the head of business at the time had had come out of a, of a finance and private equity and venture capital background and they thought you know rather than uh, hire a business team that is just going to support the product and engineering team, which is how finance had been thought of in a lot of technology companies. Why don't we hire some of the best people from the buy side to come and help shape the future of this company? And so it was a very generic description of a role. But as people have said in hindsight, when you get offered uh, a chance to jump on a rocket ship, you don't ask uh, in, in, in what capacity to get on. Yeah, that's super cool. So how long were you at Dropbox for? So I stayed for about three years. And uh, I left when the company was maybe 1,600, 1,700 people, um, which was a very dynamic time to be at the company. It was in hyper growth. And, uh, you know, I wore a lot of different hats. Uh, I helped our finance team lead uh, our Series C fundraise. I helped uh, run a business operations and strategy team which was responsible for things like pricing and packaging, uh, deciding which international markets to go to and how, um, thinking about new business, uh, new business uh, units and new monetization streams. So a really fun job, somewhere across between uh, management consulting and uh, product management, and the ability to go build new things for the company. Yeah. So, and, and I'm trying to remember from the case, whose idea was it to, to go after like the individual users to get them to sell the company, like to go after the clubs at Stanford and then to get the clubs to, to turn to the organization and say, we love this product. You need to institutionalize this. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think you're kind of blending two themes that, that dro- two, two interesting ideas that Dropbox had. Um, and, and one of those themes was, um, you know, how do we, how do we, we know we want to be, uh, uh, you know, we, we know we want to own the student market because the student market will see the professional market. And so before my time, uh, Dropbox created what was called at the time the space race, which was basically a, a viral mechanism for getting students to uh, to refer their friends from their universities or colleges. And whoever had the most signups in their school would would be rewarded with a, a disproportionate amount of space. Ended up creating you know, kind of tens of millions of new accounts and really solidified Dropbox as the cloud storage provider for many, many students Um which was a, a fantastic initiative. So that was the student side. On the kind of using our best uh, individuals to sell the product for us, uh, that's been in the DNA of the company since the beginning, but we didn't start formalizing until I joined the company. And by that, I mean, you know, the fallacy with Dropbox was it was a consumer company. Um, and it's really never been. If you look at who's paid for the product, uh, it might've been individual licenses, but a lot of times that was small businesses who would buy a license, uh, an, an individual license, and then share it with three or four other folks in the institution or the, or the small business. And so it took, uh, I would say when I joined Dropbox, we still didn't appreciate the nuance of who was actually paying for the product. But over the time uh, that I was there, we we started to see those signs and we started to think about how we could double down on using some of that that end consumer love to then become our frontline sales force in a bottoms up adoption within much larger organizations. So what we would do is we'd take say a fortune 500 company and we'd uh, through data science be able to understand, well, you know, this company has X employees and 85% of them have uh, individual Dropbox accounts. 
how can we figure out who the power users are? How can we cross that with who we think a decision maker for uh, a business license at that uh, at that domain would be? And then uh, creating a sales team to actually go out and try and sell the uh, uh, the decision makers in those organizations. And that's really how we started to generate uh, really large enterprise contracts for the company. Yeah, uh, I love it. That's that's so smart. Okay, so you're on this rocket ship, as as, as you said. You're there for a couple of years. And what's happening? Are you like thinking this is cool, but maybe I want more exposure to different businesses or like this investing itch is, is still is still inside of me? Yeah. You know, I think that what I enjoyed about Dropbox was that hyper growth phase. And um, I liked being in a small company when I kind of picked my head up and after, you know, really uh, giving everything I had to that company for for the time I was there uh, towards the end of it. And I, and I noticed, well, a lot of that hyper growth period is behind us and we're a large, uh, we're no longer a startup. This is now a, a, a true technology company in the sense of, you know, there's a, it's, it's a much more uh, a, sh- a sure thing in terms of the fate and the outcome of the business, but also from an institutional standpoint, there's more bureaucracy, there's more people. And some of the problems just became a little bit less interesting. So I started thinking about what I wanted to do, and it really fell into two buckets. One was to take another swing at a, at a startup. And so I met with maybe 15 or 20 Series A companies where I would have loved to have come in as an executive, a business executive at one of those companies, maybe as a COO or head of business, and tried to do exactly what I did at Dropbox. The second path was the one I ended up with, which was investing. And in that sense, I always I really enjoyed investing in the back of my mind, uh, even while I was at Hudson, I knew I wanted to get back to it. And it was more a question of what's the most appropriate time. So do I um, you know, do another operating role and then try and move into a fund as a partner? Or do I go straight at it and you know, take a more junior role and try and work my way up uh, the ladder at one of the venture capital funds? So th- that was kind of the decision tree I had and uh, ended up meeting the index team, which were investors in uh, Dropbox. So already had a warm relationship there. Just really kind of fell in love, similar to Dropbox, with the people, and decided to make the jump. Uh, that's I like I like that decision tree that you had. Did any of those companies that you were talking to about an executive role? Did any of those take off? Yeah, it's actually it's fun to watch now. I would say uh, <laughs> it's actually having this conversation with someone earlier this morning. Uh, a handful of them are now uh, unicorns. I don't want to get into the specific names, but of the twenty, maybe. Um, you know, five to 10 have been really, really successful. The other half have kind of busted and uh, either sold or kind of run out of runway. Um, You know, I think one of the unfair advantages of working for uh, a technology company like Dropbox is you get a lot of signal uh, through that network on what businesses are working. And so for any of your listeners who are thinking about, you know, making the transition from finance into technology, uh, I think a good piece of advice I was given, which I would pass on is to try and join uh, a company that's a little bit later stage if you're making the transition, because if you can build that network and establish that brand on your resume, it's much easier to find you know the the really early stage startup that you might ultimately want to jump to. Whereas if you try and do that right away, it's going to be a lot harder to pick that company. And if it doesn't go well, you can end up in a tricky spot. Yeah, always easier to go from big to small. So, um, okay, so now you're at Index. And as you told me before we started recording, you just became partner. How long have you, how long, so congratulations. That's, that's really cool. How, how long have you been there? So I've been at Index for about two and a half years. Um, and it's been a, a great ride. I actually came in as an associate 
Uh, at index, you know, there's only three levels. It's associate, principal, and partner. Uh, what I'd say, one of the reasons that, it, uh, that I was attracted to coming here is because it's an extremely flat hierarchical structure and that even as an associate, uh, what I had, had asked for and what I was given is autonomy. And I think for anyone who's joining venture, really what you're looking for is the ability to start putting money to work and start doing deals. And I think this is very much an apprentice-driven uh, model and that you really have to learn from the people around you and you have to learn by doing. And so what I was optimizing for was that sort of experience rather than the title um, and, and hoping that if I could... Uh, you know, learn how to do the job that I'd have a, have a chance at moving up in the, in the system. And fortunately, uh, that's how it played out here at, at Index for me. Yeah, Mark, I mean, two and a half years to go from the bottom to the top. How do you do that? Uh, well, you know, I, I think a lot of kudos goes to the Index partnership and the team here, which really has a culture of promoting from within. So of the last four partners, myself included, three actually started as associates. And we're probably different than a lot of other venture funds and certainly um, you know, larger growth equity and private equity shops in that regard, where we really see the funnel for our partner pipeline is coming from uh, the the junior ranks of the team. And I, I think it's it's because you can really see how someone's doing in the job. Um, and what we try and do is, is pick people who are um, really starting to build out a solid track record and uh, are showing signs that they can step up and lead good deals. We give them the rope to do so. So I, I think a lot of the credit goes to uh, the, the culture here at, at Index. And um, and then, you know, I think one of the things that I did wish other partners who had, had risen up had done to be successful is to really focus. And the temptation in venture uh, is to chase everything because there's so many exciting founders, so many exciting verticals and companies. But the problem is if you go too broad, um, it's hard to develop a, a, a network and expertise in, in a certain bucket. And I think that's what really gives you the credibility with founders to say, hey, you know, this is someone we want to not just invest in our company, but to be a thought partner, to be a board member. And that's kind of how you start, I think, building the track record, which uh, gives you the ability to move up in the company. Right. So how did you decide? I, I like that idea of focus. I mean, it helped you earlier in your career when you were focusing on clean tech. Did you go back to clean tech or, or was it something different this time? Well, you know, clean tech at this point, I think there's so much scar tissue in Silicon Valley. Even when I see clean tech companies now, they don't call themselves clean tech companies. They, they call themselves, you know, uh, energy, uh, next generation energy or something that they, they don't want to be tarred with that word, which has so much baggage at this point. But no, it was never my intention to do anything uh, in, in clean tech uh, at this point. What I really wanted to do is figure out what are the what are the open spaces at index where I think there's opportunities, but they're undercovered from uh, from from the fund uh, composition, and one of those areas happened to be fintech in the U.S. Also, enterprise software, where you know I had a kind of a natural fit given my Dropbox background. So those are the two focus areas that I've made a priority for myself, and um, that's where I invest most heavily in meeting founders, meeting corporate, uh, building corporate relationships to help those founders, and ultimately developing deal flow in those areas. That's so cool. So, tell us. In fintech, what kind of things have you invested in? What do you think's interesting right now? I mean, there's a, that's, that space is changing very quickly. Um, I have a startup in that space, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, first off, I'd, I'd love to hear about your startup at some point. We should take that offline. But uh, second, I mean, I think fintech is there's so much, uh, so much of the conversation in fintech is being dominated by crypto and blockchain, 
um, which I think are, 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 are super interesting areas, but I think it misses that the more traditional financial service uh, uh, services are still an enormous size of prize. And when you think about it, it's, it's $4 trillion in enterprise value in public and private um, you know, financial services companies today. I think incumbents are as vulnerable now as they've ever been. Um, you know, consumer trust, anything you, any stats you can read there are extremely low in the industry. I think the, the scars of the financial crisis are still very fresh in people's minds. And what that's done is it's created this wave of businesses over the last few years that have been able to kind of chip away at, at different uh, products and services that the banks have offered and done a poor job offering. What I think now we're seeing is that some of those companies are becoming so successful that they're now starting to rebundle other products and services around them and really creating the opportunity to become digital banks. And I think that's really where I get excited right now is which of the first generation of companies is putting themselves in a position to really become that next kind of multi-product company where I think you could create tens of billions of dollars worth of market cap. So I think that's really exciting. Another theme I'm excited about is just democratizing access to products and services. And when you think about it, and uh, my guess is many of your listeners will uh, have had great experiences with financial institutions. Uh, uh, they've probably never struggled to get a checking account or to get a, a rewards-based credit card. But that's not available to, to many folks in the U.S., certainly internationally. And I think one of the big opportunities is reaching those uh, underbanked uh, uh, consumers who can be extremely good uh, customers and um, just need to be unlocked. And so some of my bets have been around uh, both of those themes. Uh, in the latter bucket, a deal I announced last week is a company called Nova Credit. Nova Credit creates an international credit score, um, which uh, allows immigrants to the U.S. to, uh, you know, kind of not start from, from zero, which is what happens when they, they come to this, this country without a FICO score right now, and instead be able to port over their credit history from wherever they came from. So I think that's just one example of a, a company that's that's really trying to democratize access to all the, the financial products that a lot of us enjoy. Yeah, that that access. You're right. That's that's a huge uh, that's a huge opportunity. Also, I saw this billboard a couple of weeks ago, and it said, "I love going to the bank." Said no one ever. So <laughs> there's there's still opportunity in just uh, transforming the existing infrastructure, which is very very old and antiquated. You know some of these processes like ACH and the debit and credit card rails. I mean they haven't changed in twenty thirty years. So uh, I think it's a pretty cool time in in fintech. Uh, absolutely, and I go one further with saying even the products that are out there, a lot of times the user experience is so poor. Um, that adoption is extremely low. So there's an opportunity even just to take an existing product and make it usable, um, which sounds so simple, but I think is is very much still an opportunity. Yeah. Okay. Well, Mark, we've hit the advice component of the podcast. This is the the final question here. You know, you already gave us the advice of you know transitioning from finance to tech that you should go try to attach yourself to one of these rocket ships. Um, let's say you're graduating school right now and you're, I mean, you're not quite sure what you want to do. You, you know, you're good with numbers. You like finance. Investment banking is a great place to start. But like, what do you tell someone that's kind of trying to find their, their path in life? Well, I think the, the path in life is a harder question. But I think if you're interested in, uh, in, in building a, a, a business career and you're interested in, in finance, I think the world has changed since when I graduated college in 2007, where it really was, you know, you started on Wall Street and then maybe you'd evolve into something else. Now, I, th I think if you're interested in technology, you should join a technology company. 
And there are opportunities to do that, even if you're not a, a, an engineer. And so I would say, um, you know, come right out here, come to, to come to Silicon Valley, go to, you know, there's, there's great tech hubs developing all across the country um, and just start doing it. And if you're going to pick a technology company, I already mentioned that, you know, going a little bit later stage, I think is a, a good place to start, but I'd really optimize for, um, you know, the people that you're going to be working with, the learning opportunity you can get, because at an early point in your career, that's really what's going to open the door to some much more interesting opportunities down the road. So for example, at Dropbox, we had a, uh, a, a rotational program where we'd hire people directly out of colleges. And you know, the first batch of that was in, I believe, 2013, 2014. And uh, the, the role was, uh, oh, it was the, the lowest rung at, at Dropbox. It was everyone had to start responding to customer service requests and then would rotate into sales and some other functions. Not a glorious job, but a great way to learn the inside guts of a technology company. And when you look at what many of those uh, graduates of that rotational program are doing now, it's 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 just mind blowing how cool the different things they're doing. Whether it's starting their own companies, going into venture, uh, taking more senior roles at earlier stage companies. So if someone's interested in technology who's listening, they should go right into it. Yeah, I love that advice, Mark. This was a lot of fun speaking with you. Thanks, thanks for. Uh going into the details here on your journey and the advice. I really appreciate it. Alex, thank you. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate the time. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening today. Let me know what you think. Leave us a review on iTunes and tell your friends about this podcast. Thank you.